Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is John Boland. I'm President Emeritus of KQED Public Media and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board, and I'm excited to be moderating today's program. I'm pleased to be joined by Matthew Lacombe, an Assistant Professor of Political Science at Columbia University and the author of a new book, Firepower, How the NRA Turned Gun Owners into a Political Force. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions, too. So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions into the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us. Our discussion comes at a time when firearms regulation and, the, by extension, the power of the NRA are very much top of mind because of the recent high-profile shootings. But your book is really not about these recent tragedies or what to do about gun violence in the U.S., but rather helps us understand how we ended up with our current gun regulations, or the lack thereof, and the NRA's role. And more specifically, how the NRA became the politically powerful organization it is today, how and why it is so aligned with the Republican Party, and how it became central to the social and political identity of its members. We hear a lot about the power of money in politics, and the recent scandals and investigations into the NRA have actually focused on money. So one might think that the NRA is just another very rich lobbying group. But you posit that money is not the primary source of the NRA's power. Rather, it is the political power of the NRA's highly motivated membership that makes the NRA so effective. To start, please give us a very high-level timeline of the evolution of the NRA from its early days to the powerful organization it is today. Sure. Thanks a lot, John, and thanks to the Commonwealth Club uh, for having me. It's great to to be here and partake in this event. So the NRA was founded all the way back in 1871 after the Civil War. Uh, The Union soldiers were deemed poor marksmen, um, and so there was an effort uh, to, to, to establish a club uh, that could develop the marksmanship skills of, of, of men for purposes of military preparedness. The organization was nearly defunct around the turn of the 20th century, uh, but then in the first few decades of that century, it was, it was reinvigorated as part of, of renewed efforts uh, to push marksmanship training. Uh, the NRA, uh, as I sort of explore in the book, in uh, contrary to some sort of uh, uh, popular understandings of its history, was politically active uh, as early as the 1930s, which was when federal level gun regulations were first proposed. Uh, the NRA at that time, in ways that it does now, uh, uh, sought to oppose those regulations by mobilizing its members uh, to contact their legislators in Washington uh, and to tell them that they don't want gun controls. Um, the NRA sort of continued that approach all the way through the 1960s. And what's notable is that despite the fact that the NRA uh, in these early decades opposed gun control, it did not align itself with a political party. That is to say, it was a nonpartisan organization. In part, that was a result of its close relationship with the U.S. military. The NRA played a large role in administering marksmanship training programs. And and the federal funds that it received uh, in order to administer those programs sort of disincentivized it uh, from taking sides politically. That started to change in the 1960s. Uh, The NRA's reputation for fighting against gun control laws uh, started to catch up with it. Uh, A lot of Americans were upset that it was receiving substantial federal funding. Um, And moreover, uh, the world had entered a nuclear age and the sort of of personal marksmanship skills associated with the NRA were no longer seen as, as so important. The military slashed its funding, uh, a decision made by Congress, and that sort of freed the NRA uh, uh, to take sides politically, something that it started to do uh, in the late 70s after the organization was taken over uh, by some um, ideologically conservative activist members. It then uh, endorsed Ronald Reagan uh, for president in 1980, its first political endorsement. Um, And in the time since then, it's become um, gradually uh, uh, more and more aligned uh, with the Republican Party, a process um, that has enhanced its influence for the most part, um, enabling it to often keep gun control off the agenda altogether. I um, mean, one that I think really culminated with the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Trump really shared the NRA's worldview and in some important ways, which we're, we perhaps can say more about during our conversation. And so just how many, uh, give us a sense of how big the NRA is, how many members do they have, and, and sort of what pop, what percentage of the electorate might they represent? 
Sure. So the NRA uh, uh, has about 5 million members, which is a self-reported figure, um, 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 which is to say that it's a large organization, although not necessarily one that, that comprises a large proportion of, of the electorate. Uh, you know, the U.S. population is now over 300 million. Um, 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 so 5 million doesn't sound like so many members. On the other hand, um, the NRA does compare well to some other uh, mass membership organizations. The Sierra Club, for example, is a bit under 4 million members. Um, And so uh, by those metrics, the NRA does seem to be a fairly large organization. Uh, We could think about it differently. The U.S. has anywhere anywhere from 30 to 40 percent of Americans are gun owners. Um, And and in that sense, uh, uh, even among the gun owning population, the NRA doesn't necessarily have huge membership numbers. Uh, now, having said that, there are, I think in surveys, it's around 20% of gun owners claim to be NRA members, uh, which would make the NRA's membership about three times what it reports. So there are some people out there who seem to think that they're NRA members, or at least represented by the organization, but I have actually not paid their dues. Um, Interestingly, I learned from your book that a majority of Americans have favored gun regulation consistently for nearly 100 years. Uh, and it's still the majority position, as we've been reading this week. How has this intense minority, as you as you call the NRA, and I like that term, managed not only to prevent further gun regulation, but also to roll back regulations? So there's a notion, and I think a reasonable one, uh, that public policy should respond to what most Americans want. But if you think about this from the perspective of politicians who are looking to win elections, I think they often think in terms of which uh, issue stances, which actions are going to earn them votes and which are going to lose them votes. So although uh, the NRA's sort of uh, uh, gun rights supporting uh, uh, population, that is to say the minority of Americans who support gun control, even though they don't comprise a majority of the country, um, many of them are willing to base their vote solely on this issue. Um, and as a result, I think a lot of legislators historically have thought that 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 uh, supporting gun control, despite its popularity, probably won't bring many votes to them, uh, but, but, but doing so could uh, uh, lose them a substantial number of votes. The other really fascinating thing is that um, uh, when gun control laws are proposed, it's often been the case historically um, uh, that many, 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 many more opponents of gun control contact their members of Congress than supporters of gun control, almost 20 to one sometimes uh, with letters coming in to members of Congress opposing new gun laws versus supporting them. And as a result, there's evidence um, that legislators actually misperceive public opinion on the issue among their constituents and actually think that their constituents are much more opposed to gun control than they actually are as revealed in surveys. And I think that's a result of the sort of imbalanced levels of political participation um, uh, that have been associated with the issue historically. And how did um, you just mentioned, would you consider uh, NRA members one issue voters, sort of like an anti-abortion activist would vote for a candidate just on that basis? And how what did the NRA do to make gun rights so central to the worldview of its members? I mean, how did they get gun rights to the very top of their agenda? Sure. So I do think it's true that for many gun owners, many gun rights supporters, this is an issue uh, that they're willing to base their votes on, that they're willing to change their votes on um, based on what a policymaker uh, or candidate for office does. So how has the NRA achieved that? Well, what I argue in the book is that something that the NRA has done successfully over the course of, of, of 80 plus years is to build a sense of identity around gun ownership, to create Uh, sort of gun owner social identity um, um, in which guns, rather than being tools that people might use for recreation or self-defense, are instead symbols of who people are, what they believe, what they value, uh, and how they see their place in the world. Um, Moreover, the NRA has connected that sense of identity to politics. Uh, It's made it a sort of lens through which it encourages its supporters to think about politics. Um, um, And so with that political that politicized sense of identity and existence, the NRA is then able to mobilize its supporters uh, by by portraying the identity as under threat, by saying that its opponents uh, uh, and gun control supporters more broadly um, are seeking to harm that identity, to harm who people are. And so rather than viewing proposed gun regulations um, as something that might be kind of a pain in the butt, instead, um, um, it's often interpreted as an attack 
uh, on who some gun, or, gun owners are um, as individuals and as an attack on their values. And that sort of identity threat is, is the sort of thing um, that social psychologists tell us is very likely to spur mobilization. So in short, the NRA has built this sense of identity around gun ownership, um, and then it portrays that identity as threatened, uh, which leads to widespread mobilization on behalf of its gun rights agenda. So how did they, they can, and, and obviously this is a percentage of gun owners. There, there are gun owners who favor gun safety regulation. So, so you have this group identity, but how did they pull this off? In other words, what did they say to people that would convince them that be, I am a gun owner, that's, that's what I am, and, and I'm being attacked and therefore I'm reacting? Sure. So uh, it, there was it, there are a few steps in that process, and I'm glad you said, by the way, that this is a sort of uh, proportion of gun owners and not necessarily all gun owners. I think that we should distinguish between individuals who own guns and individuals who sort of socially and politically identify as such. There are people out there for whom um, um, the guns that they own are not an important lens um, through which they view politics. But what we're really talking about here are 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 the individuals who do do that, who do see guns as, as sort of representative symbolically of a broader political outlook. So how did the NRA create, disseminate, and, and sort of use that identity over time? Well, one thing it did was it started to associate gun ownership with a certain set of positive characteristics. It told gun owners uh, that they are patriotic, law-abiding citizens who are self-sufficient, who are responsible, who want to uphold the American tradition. And they associated uh, uh, the, uh, the opponents of gun rights, gun control supporters, um, with a number of negative characteristics. They are un-American. They're seen as, uh, in different historical periods, as either collectivists, socialists, communists. Um, 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 they don't believe in the American tradition. They, want, uh, they don't want to be self-sufficient. Um, 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 they're sort of elitists from big cities who don't understand what it's like to be an average American. Um, the NRA did that uh, through two distinct routes. So what I really focus a lot on in the book is how the NRA did this through its membership publications. So I collected um, 80 years of the NRA's magazine, uh, and then I analyzed it in a number of different ways. And I looked at the sort of frequency with which the NRA um, um, described its members using these positive terms and described its opponents using these, these negative terms. Um, but the NRA, importantly, also does this uh, through its, its firearms-related programming, um, um, which is really popular. Um, so, so, you know, owning guns, using guns, learning about guns is, is an activity. It's something that people do in real life. Um, and so the NRA, above and beyond being this political organization, is also this organization that provides a lot of firearms-related programs and services. Um, those programs and services are seemingly apolitical, uh, but when you dig into the materials that the NRA uses uh, uh, as part of those programs, sort of what they say to people who are, who are taking part in them, um, it becomes clear that it's actually a really important route through which it, it can disseminate that identity. Um, so people buy a gun for whatever reason. Um, um, they take these classes, which the NRA uh, is the sort of primary provider of. And through those programs, um, um, they come to adopt a certain uh, view on what it means to be a gun owner. Um, and then beyond that, uh, what the NRA has done is when it discusses gun control, um, and this is how it connects uh, the identity to politics. So when it discusses gun control, rather than saying you should oppose law X because it contains um, um, some technical flaws uh, that will prevent it from being successful at reducing gun violence. Instead, it says that proposed law X is an attack on who we are and what we believe in. Um, and so it, it frames, in other words, its opposition to gun control in identity terms rather than relying on sort of wonky statistics or technical arguments about why gun owners should oppose gun control. So it really emphasizes the sort of negative impacts uh, that gun control has uh, on, on gun owner identity. Um, and then finally, uh, uh, in order uh, to actually mobilize action um, on behalf of, of its gun rights agenda, um, the NRA portrays that identity as under threat, and it, and, it, and it pairs those portrayals of threat with calls to action on behalf of gun rights. So it says the bureaucrats in Washington are attacking what we believe in and our traditions. You need to contact your legislator now uh, and tell them, never vote for gun control, and if you do, I'll vote against you. Uh, in November. Um, so that's the sort of high level overview of how that process uh, 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 sort of plays out. 
And, and I'm guessing it's a percentage. In other words, a lot of Americans own guns. And I'm sure a lot of Americans who own guns take safety training and target training and other kinds of services that the NRA offers in addition to the political work. But I'm guessing that only a certain percentage of the folks who use NRA services actually end up responding favorably to this call to action that, 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 that become part of the group identity. Is there anything about the NRA members who are, who identify as gun owners and are politically active that predisposes them? Are there, are there particular characteristics of the, the, the core NRA members? That's a that's a great question, and it's one that's really hard to unpack for a number of reasons. Uh, some of those reasons are related to the challenges of, of social science research. Other uh, challenges are related to the fact that, that the NRA doesn't make a lot of information public. Um, um, and so it's hard to know exactly who its members are, exactly what demographics they're from, and so on and so forth. But as far as we can tell, the NRA sort of core members, those members who will respond to those calls to action, um, tend to not just hold the gun owner identity, but they also tend to hold a number of other identities associated, at least in contemporary politics, with conservatism and the Republican Party. So a lot of these sort of core politically active members um, are statistically more likely to be Republicans. They're statistically more likely to be conservatives, uh, which isn't quite the same thing. Um, they're statistically more likely to be from rural areas. Um, um, interestingly to me, they're statistically more likely um, 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 to be evangelical Christians and to hold a, a sort of a, a religious worldview in which they want Christianity to play an important role in civic life. Um, they're more likely um, um, to be white men um, 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 and so on and so forth. So it's a lot of the sort of demographics associated uh, uh, with contemporary conservatism and the Republican Party. And the, the last thing I want to note related to that question um, is that it's true. Uh, there are lots of Americans who own guns, um, um, who don't join the NRA, uh, who maybe do join the NRA, but don't really care for its politics. Um, and so we're not talking about a huge proportion uh, necessarily of American gun owners. But the thing is, if you can get 20,000 people to write letters to the president or 20,000 people to write letters uh, to their member of Congress, that's actually a huge number. Um, 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 so when you're talking about political participation uh, outside of voting, um, it's not a thing that all that many people engage in. Um, and so what might seem like a relatively small number uh, relative to the, the, the number of, of Americans who own guns or, or more broadly relative uh, to the, the size of the electorate can actually be a big deal. That sort of intense minority um, can, can, can make a real impact uh, on how legislators view particular issues. And I know this is also sort of a psychological question, but if there are more people in the United States in favor of gun regulation than there are against it, and all surveys show that, and the NRI has this core, very activist group, in a time like we're in now, where many people in the country are very upset about mass shootings, how is it that 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 the NRA still speaks louder? I, 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 are, the, are the rest of the the folks who are for gun regulation just not that vehement? Or so that's a that's a great question, and I think one of the the, the sort of key advantages that the NRA has gained by building a, a, an important identity around gun ownership is that it's not just that its members are are periodically engaged with the issue. It's that this is a sort of durable identity that they hold and that the NRA has been able to draw on time and again. So what happens sometimes is, is bad things happen in the world. There are horrific mass shootings, like ones that occurred in the past two weeks. And that does often spur uh, uh, sort of spurts of support for gun control. But historically, um, um, the legislative process is a thing that plays out slowly. Um, um, and over time, uh, uh, the gun issue sort of falls out of, of, of the, the, you know, the public's mindset. Um, and so you might see immediately after a mass shooting, for example, a spike in the number of letters or phone calls sent to politicians in support of gun control. Um, um, even to the point that it rivals or surpasses uh, the number of, of, of letters and phone calls in opposition to gun control. But then as time goes on, as that, as that slow legislative process plays out, uh, the number of pro-gun contacts um, historically has kind of stayed 
pretty consistent. Uh, and the number of, of, of pro-gun control uh, contacts generally goes down over time. Um, um, and, and so, you know, it's a sort of combination of the NRA being able to, to durably and consistently mobilize people, uh, along with the nature of the legislative process, uh, which is really drawn out uh, and difficult. Uh, um, um, and, and so I, I think one of the things that, that would be a sign of progress uh, for the gun safety advocacy side, and one that I would argue we have seen in recent years, um, um, is a creation of a sort of grassroots infrastructure that can apply that same sort of consistent and durable pressure. Having said that, those, those gun safety advocates need to be, uh, uh, um, um, they need to be patient because unfortunately uh, 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 for those uh, out there who support gun control, um, you know, passing legislation in the U.S. is harder than preventing it. Um, and so, you know, uh, it requires both that consistent pressure um, um, to force politicians to prioritize the issue. And then it also requires um, um, good timing, uh, um, um, especially in a system um, um, like ours that has a legislative filibuster. At this point, it looks like it, you know, it might require not just unified democratic control of government to pass federal level gun control, but, but you know, a, a filibuster proof Senate. Um, um, and so that suggests, I, I think that, I think that, you know, if you look back, for example, on the, 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 the 2020 presidential, Democratic presidential primaries, they were really remarkable for the extent to which uh, uh, Democrats were trying to sort of move to each other's left on this issue. It, you don't have to go that far back in time to see Democrats trying to sort of avoid talking about gun control. So the fact that you had Democrats sort of trying to outflank each other in terms of their support of gun control when they were seeking the nomination, I think signals real real progress for gun safety advocates. But like I said, uh, uh, the, the nature of the United States lawmaking institutions is such um, 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 that I think those those activists need to sort of keep up the pressure and be patient. Um, 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 and that's just kind of the way the, the process plays out here. So all of that is to say that another advantage um, the NRA has uh, is institutional, which is that it's often trying to stop things from happening rather than make them happen. Um, and, and, and so that means um, that, that now that it's sort of aligned itself with the political party, it can often kill gun control uh, if, if, you know, it's, it's, it's GOP allies control, you know, either, the, either, either Chamber of Commerce, Congress or the White House. And it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition right now that there were two bills to come out of the House related to gun control, not not extreme uh, bills, really, uh, but, you know, improvements. And uh, and then these shootings happen. And I don't know that those two factors have been in such close proximity in the past. What does the what does the NRA do in times like this? In other words, when mass shootings are top of mind and people are quite upset. Does the NRA just go quiet or do they commiserate or do they activate their members? How do they react when, when things are very hot for them? So it's playbook in the past couple of decades has been to sort of stay quiet for a few days. Um, and then to come out uh, like all, you know, pun intended, all guns blazing. Um, um, and to, to, to mobilize its members the way it, it typically does by saying that, that, you know, although the tragedies are unfortunate, they shouldn't be used as an excuse uh, to take away the rights of law-abiding Americans. Um, um, and that as a result, um, gun owners and NRA supporters need to sort of fight back uh, against the proposed legislation. So there's been a sort of playbook where they stay quiet and then they quickly um, um, come out um, and, and tell their supporters that we're under attack and we and we need to take action. Um, um, we can get into how this particular episode uh, might be a little bit different as a result of the NRA's sort of organizational uh, weakness right now. Um, um, uh, but so far, it's playing out, I think, the way you know it, it has uh, in, in the past. And we'll, we'll, we'll see how it develops in the weeks to come. What, what do you think about the their current situation? Weakness meaning that their leadership has been under fire, both internally and externally. They're being investigated by the attorney general in New York, and and there's been other financial scandals. Has that affected the passion of their membership or their ability to move things politically? Yeah, see, so that's what's interesting is is so so just to to give a quick overview of that, um, um, the you know the NRA faces several organizational challenges right now. Uh, it's faced internal conflict among its own leadership, um, um, in which its 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 longtime chief 
Wayne LaPierre has been credibly accused of engaging in, in grift. Um, um, and that's led uh, to, to infighting between him uh, and, and, and other former, now former NRA leaders like Oliver North, who's the NRA's president, and, and Christopher Cox, who was uh, uh, the NRA's chief lobbyist and, and prior to being pushed out of the organization, seen as LaPierre's heir apparent. Um, the NRA has seen external conflict, including uh, most, most prominently, including a lawsuit uh, launched by the state of New York, led by New York AG, um, uh, Letitia James, uh, which seeks to dissolve the organization as a result of the financial misdeeds um, that LaPierre is accused of engaging in. Um, and, and, and as a result of all of that, the NRA is in pretty bad financial shape um, um, and it declared bankruptcy um, um, earlier this year. It's unclear the extent to which that bankruptcy is, is a sort of genuine need for the organization right now versus a sort of tactic as a way to try and get out of um, um, the, the lawsuit that New York launched. Um, I think there's a chance that the NRA is trying to um, employ a maneuver in which it uses the bankruptcy to sort of dissolve itself in the state of New York, where its nonprofit charter is located, and then to reestablish uh, in Texas shortly thereafter. Um, I'm not an accountant or a lawyer. I can't speak to whether that will work. Um, the, the best folks I've talked to seem to think that, seem to be skeptical that it'll work, but I, I think there's, there's a chance that it's a tactic. But in any case, the NRA is not in great shape organizationally. So that leads some to think that it's not going to be able to, to sort of effectively fight um, 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 against the gun control laws that have been proposed uh, 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 over the past few weeks and that have uh, really been uh, uh, invigorated, that effort has been invigorated in the past week as a result of the mass shootings we've seen. The thing is, however, that to the extent that the NRA has, has sort of thrived politically as a result of having this, this politically dedicated, um, um, very politically active uh, uh, membership base, uh, it doesn't necessarily need a lot of money uh, to effectively fight back against proposed regulations. And moreover, at this point in time, having cultivated that mass level base, even if the NRA were to go away, there would still be lots and lots of gun rights supporters out there um, who will fight hard against proposed legislation. So I think over if the NRA uh, uh, is unable to come back from its current challenges, then I think uh, uh, things will change in the midterm and the long term. But in the short term, um, um, I, I I think that that you know the NRA has already laid groundwork um, that can be used to fight gun control, you know, even when it's in a moment of organizational weakness. So I I think I think the the, the sorts of of changes that might uh, be seen in the gun debate as a result of the NRA's potential demise will take a little while to show up. Uh, people don't adopt important political identities um, um, and then sort of lose them overnight just because organizations they they joined um, are, are faltering. Uh, having said that. You know, uh, 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 down the line, if the if the NRA is a sort of political pariah or is or is weaker or or is dissolved, um, um, then I think uh, the the sort of um, uh, prominence of that gun owner identity and the meaning of it uh, uh, in U.S. society um, um, will, will decline and or change. But that'll that'll just take a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to slip in a, an audience question here because it, it it relates and it's kind of interesting. How much does the personality of Wayne LaPierre play into how the NRA operates? Because he's been in, in charge for a while. Um, and I don't know how long, so maybe you can tell us how he's changed the organization. Yeah, that's that's a great question, too. So LaPierre originally joined as a, a, a lobbyist uh, in the in the 80s, um, and he's been uh, in charge of the organization since the early 90s. Uh, so at this point, he's its longest running chief. Um you know, in, in some ways, uh, I think that the organization's approach to politics um, um, has has been somewhat constant um, um, before and after um, he took over. You know, uh, sort of on a high level, this emphasis on identity-based mobilization, um, this emphasis on, on on building relationships with Republican politicians. These are things that predate him. On the other hand, um, um, the tone of the NRA's approach to politics um, 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 and, 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 and sort of its position on the ideological spectrum um, has, has gone much further right and become much more hard line in the LaPierre years. It's really the LaPierre years in which um, the NRA went from being uh, uh, an organization mostly concerned about gun rights and that is sort of uh, generally aligned with conservative and Republican politicians to one that is sort of at the right fringe, um, um, I think we could say uh, fairly, you know, of the Republican Party. And, and so it was really during the LaPierre years that this sort of political worldview that ends up looking a lot like Trumpism um, starts to be developed. Now, having said that, I'm not sure that it's necessarily a matter of LaPierre's 
personality per se. Um, um, that is to say that I think that this was a, a product of, of political strategizing and also um, um, the NRA's work with uh, a PR firm called Ackerman McQueen, uh, who LaPierre brought on board, uh, but who the NRA is now in a, in a lawsuit with. Um, but Ackerman McQueen was for a long time sort of synonymous with the NRA's uh, approach to public relations until and until the messy divorce between LaPierre and Ackerman McQueen in recent years, um, um, LaPierre worked closely with them. So I don't know the extent to which it's a, a sort of matter of LaPierre's personality, um, um, uh, but it's nonetheless been a product of his, I think it's fair to say that the NRA's current politics are in large part a product of his leadership. Um, um, and and he's been in charge for so long that it's, 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 it's hard to say exactly what a post Wayne LaPierre uh, NRA would look like. Um, um, and that would be a, a sort of fascinating thing to see. I, I think, you know, truthfully, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that LaPierre is still uh, uh, in charge of the organization, given how much of, of the current lawsuits are related to his behavior specifically. And I think the fact that he's been able to hang on uh, speaks to the, the sort of power that he wields within the organization and the extent to which he's been able to sort of fill the organization with people who are loyal to him. So as a bit of historical context, both of LaPierre's immediate successors, actually, uh, um, um, were, were also accused of grift. Um, but, in, but in both cases, they were pushed out of the organization, um, um, which has not happened um, in the LaPierre case. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Ha has he not, given that uh, he's, li he's lived very lavishly, according to all the reports, and, and really utilized the, the NRA to do so. And I'm sure a lot of his members don't live that lavishly. How has he not been vilified and, uh, and the membership, I, I'm sure he stacked the board and the, and the staff, but how much power does the membership actually have? So the truth is that the membership uh, does not have a ton of power uh, to, to make personnel decisions, including who, you know, the executive vice president uh, and CEO of the organization would be. Um, somewhat ironically, um, the sort of organizational bylaws uh, um, um, that, that sort of do or do not give power to remove lead officials um, were changed after the NRA, in, in the years following the NRA being taken over by activist members um, um, in 1977. So in 1977, there was uh, an event called the, the Revolt at Cincinnati, um, in which uh, ideologically hardline members of the organization used um, um, hidden features in the bylaws that they had figured out um, to sort of uh, stage an organizational coup d'etat and take over control of the organization. But in the years after that, those leaders then um, 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 sort of uh, reinforced their control of the organization by gradually altering those bylaws in ways that make it more and more difficult um, 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 to, to engage in that sort of approach. And so in a really dramatic scene at the, uh, I guess it would be the, the, the 2019 NRA annual meeting, um, there were some members who seemed, uh, and that was in Indianapolis, there were some members, I was there, um, there were some members who seemed to want to try and, and, and launch that sort of effort, um, uh, but it doesn't seem that the, the bylaws sort of allow it now. Um, um, so anyway, does that get at your question, John? I, I started rambling, yeah, yeah. and I'm not sure that I actually. Got and also, it, so. what 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 role does Oliver North play? In other words, it sounds like the executive vice president is the most powerful person in the organization. Yes, um, the the president of the NRA is more of a figurehead role, typically an unpaid one, and one that helps uh, with public relations and fundraising. So historically, this has either been um, sort of. Uh, um, um, uh, firearm uh, manufacturer executives um, who are good at sort of hobnobbing that side of the business and raising money for the organization that way. Or in other times, it's been um, um, sort of uh, heroic conservative figures. Um, um, so most prominently Charlton Heston, uh, but then Oliver North was also an NRA president in that mold, um, who I think uh, the organization looked to, um, to inspire a certain image uh, for the organization. Uh, what happened in North's case, though, is that rather than being satisfied with that sort of figurehead role, um, North wanted to exert some real control over the organization. Um, um, and as far as we know, it appeared that he sort of tried to, to blackmail um, LaPierre. Uh, but LaPierre won that battle um, um, in rather dramatic fashion during that meeting in Indianapolis. Um, and then the day after uh, LaPierre uh, sort of pushed North out following North's blackmail attempt, um, um, the, the leadership came out onto the stage in Indianapolis I mean, they still had a chair and a placard set, uh, a chair set up for North with a placard with his name on it, but there was no North. Uh, um, um, and, and it was, it was a, it was a dramatic scene. Um, 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 
so anyway, oh, but to go back to your question, John, about how has LaPierre sort of avoided uh, vilification uh, um, um, given uh, the sort of lavish lifestyle that he's now, that we now know he lives um, and, and, the, and the ways in which that sort of clashes with the popular image um, that the NRA portrays uh, of gun owners. So I think two things, I think one, for a long time, it was pretty unknown. Um, I, I, I don't think folks realized um, that LaPierre um, was living that sort of life. Um, um, and two, I think for a long time, the organization was growing such um, that, 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 that I don't think there was a lot of, of, of um, concern about how LaPierre was spending money because the organization as a whole was doing well. So I think it was once sort of financial crunch started, um, all of a sudden there was a, a more introspection in the organization to see where money was going. And all of a sudden LaPierre's lifestyle didn't look so good. And I do think in the time um, um, since those revelations have come out, there are a lot of NRA members who are, are rather critical of LaPierre and might prefer um, that, that, that he leave the organization. Um, um, and the organization is hard to say exactly, but my sense is that it has lost some members um, who are sort of uh, fed up uh, with, with current leadership and would like to see it replaced. So sort of complex um, um, intra-community politicking, um, some of which uh, uh, only will come out uh, uh, you know, historically, but anyway. Yeah. One of the other audience questions is, are, do they, likes Charlton Heston, do they have any uh, celebrities now who help increase the mass appeal? Or is it, and is Oliver North still there? No, Oliver North is gone. Oliver North is very much gone. Um, after uh, uh, his attempt to, to, to sort of push LaPierre out, he, he, he is now, uh, very much out of the organization. Um, you know, he still has some celebrity friends, um, um, but it's lost some also in in, in recent years um, uh, as it's sort of become uh, a more controversial. Or, I mean, it was already a controversial organization, but I think it's fair to say it's become more controversial, um, um, especially as as these lawsuits have unfolded. So I believe Tom Selleck, for example, was a board member for a long time, uh, but he's left. And I think he made a statement saying that he just didn't have time anymore, but that's probably not why, you know, why, why he chose to leave. Um, 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 there's still the sort of, uh, uh, Ted Nugent, I, I think is still, is still on board. Uh, but, but to answer the question, I don't think there's anyone quite like Charlton Heston anymore out there, um, who's on board with the organization. I think, um, um, some of the, the folks that, that the organization has used as figureheads in more recent years um, um, are, are more controversial than Heston types. Um, um, Dana Loesch, uh, for example, um, um, is no longer with the organization um, um, for complicated reasons, uh, but she was sort of a sort of a, a hardline firebrand. And I think the NRA decided to go more uh, in that direction um, than in the direction of having um, um, this sort of uh, more hopeful and inspiring um, image uh, of the sort that 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 Heston um, gave off. Having said that, the NRA still uses, even though he's passed away a long time ago, the NRA still uses video clips of Heston um, at a lot of its events um, um, and as parts of its appeals, uh, which I think is really um, sort of fascinating. Um, yeah, interesting. See, looking back, I remember when I started my journalism career, which was back in the middle of the 20th century, there were progressive Republicans there were conservative Democrats and there were NRA members represented in both parties. How did that change to become just a conservative issue, just a re Republican issue? How did the NRA evolve to, to be partisan as opposed to nonpartisan? Sure. So, I mean, part of it is, is sort of shifts in the parties, you know, so as the parties um, um, became more uh, ideologically uniform in the way you described, as we as we arrived at a place where there are fewer and fewer conservative Democrats and fewer and fewer sort of centrist uh, uh, or even liberal uh, Republicans, um, 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 that has probably driven uh, some of the polarization on the gun issue. But a lot of it has to do with the NRA's actions. So the NRA, as I, I noted earlier, for a long time, tried to avoid partisan politics. So it was politically active. It opposed gun control, uh, but, it, but it did not take sides. Um, um, that started to change after that revolt at Cincinnati that I mentioned. Um, so the, the, the sort of hardline activist leaders uh, who, who seized control of the organization at the revolt at Cincinnati in 1977 um, were, were, were generally sort of aligned with, um, 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 and there was some overlap with an insurgent conservative movement called the New Right. Um, so once leadership of the organization changed in 77, sort of quickly became aligned with 
that insurgent new right conservative movement, um, um, uh, which included support for gun rights among many other issue positions um, in its in its uh, uh, sort of political platform. The new right then came to to gradually define uh, or redefine the Republican Party, um, um, uh, most notably with Reagan's election in 1980. Um, although there was, you know, historically there was a little bit of battling between the new right and Reagan. In general, Reagan was sort of a rival of the new right in the highest office in the land, um, um, and so. With the NRA's endorsement of Reagan, with its alignment with the New Right, um, it was it was that late seventies, early eighties time um, um, that 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 really um, um, sort of crystallized the relationship between the NRA and the GOP. And then it's only grown in force over time. Um, um, the NRA has 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 um, really reached a point now where it has kind of linked fate with the Republican Party, um, and as a result. Um, um, sort of uh, uh, support that it used to give Democrats, um, a non-negligible number of Democrats, um, has kind of gone away. The NRA supports very, very, very few Democrats now. Um, and in some ways, I think it, that speaks to, to uh, um, the extent to which the GOP has come to support gun rights. But I also think um, um, it's, it's interesting because it, it means uh, that, that the NRA's um, it's made it easier for Democrats to support gun control is what I'm trying to say. So, so as the NRA has become uh, more aligned with the GOP, that's been really good for it when the GOP controls uh, uh, government, uh, whether on the federal or state levels. Uh, but it also has the downside of meaning that the, the sort of costs of supporting gun control for Democrats um, are lower. Um, yeah. And what are the other issues other than gun, gun ownership? What are the other top issues that bind NRA members to this group identity? Sure. So when we've talked a lot about identity, but the other thing that the NRA did historically is, is to build a sort of ideology, um, that is to say a, a more comprehensive political outlook around gun rights. Um, the sort of first principles of that ideology are related um, to liberty, uh, to limited government, um, and to a certain form of a certain approach to crime, crime control um, that focuses more on our armed personal armed defense um, and harsh punishment um, than it does to, to restricting, uh, than it does on restricting access to firearms. So those are sort of uh, high level principles um, um, that unify a lot of NRA members. But in contemporary politics, um, um, the identity, the ideology associated with the identity has become increasingly sort of wrapped up with the general approach of the Republican Party. So we see, for example, um, that, that, that sort of white racial identity is a statistical predictor of gun ownership. Uh, and opposition to gun control. Um, we see, and fascinatingly, in my opinion, because there's no intuitive connection between religion and guns, we see um, that, that folks who, who we could describe as Christian nationalists, which is to say that they think Christianity should play an important role in American civic life, they are more likely um, um, to own guns and to support gun control. And um, we see this with a certain type of gender, uh, traditional gender-related identity. Um, so that basically, this this full range of, of so-called culture war issues have all become wrapped up with guns. Um, um, and, 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 and as that happened, and as the Republican Party adopted that, that, that political perspective, um, we've seen the identities associated with that issue, with those issues become sort of wrapped up together. Um, and when identities uh, become wrapped up together, they're each sort of reinforced individually. And that's something that contributes to political polarization, um, because it means when one of those sort of identities feels like it's under attack, uh, they all feel like they're under attack. So rather than being sort of pulled in different directions politically, um, um, the political identities people hold sort of fit together and therefore uh, um, reinforce each other. Um, and that really culminated, in my view, with the election of Donald Trump, because um, sure, for a long time, the, the Republican Party uh, supported gun rights, but it was really Trump who adopted uh, that sort of uh, worldview, that combination of a particular um, sort of ideology and identity and articulated it um, 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 in new ways. And so that, in a lot of ways, was a sort of apex, I think, of the NRA's place um, in, in the Republican Party and in politics. And that, that newer worldview beyond involving the, the, the sorts of issues and identities I mentioned also involves um, 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 some uh, sort of a brand of right-wing nationalistic populism, which is to say um, there's a lot of animosity towards elites um, there's sort of deep state conspiracy theories and a notion that 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 there are people in government and in the media uh, who are working against the interests of real Americans. Um, um, there's a notion that 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 there's a push for sort of socialism and collectivism um, um, that that harms the, the sort of American tradition. Um, so a lot of these these themes, that sort of right wing populism uh, associated with Trump, 
um, um, has also been articulated by the NRA for the past couple of decades um, um, in ways that, that I think make the bond between Trump and the NRA make more sense um, um, than it might initially, given that Trump is a, a, you know, a flashy billionaire from New York City who I, I, you know, doesn't exactly personify um, um, the image of gun owners that the NRA puts out there, but he, but he articulates this worldview that, that really aligns with the NRAs. Um, and I think that's why their bond was so, so tight. Um, yeah, and, and it strikes me that the, the post-Trump Republican Party is much more aligned with all of those factors, including the NRA's position, than the pre-Trump Republican Party. Right, which speaks, I think, to a pretty great extent um, to, to, to Trump's impact on the party and his ability to reshape the party in only four years as president. Um, and so, you know, something that I think is really interesting and, and that we should keep an eye on um, um, is, is whether uh, we see shifts uh, in the Republican Party following the Trump presidency. You know, uh, I, I do think um, you're right that to a pretty great extent, uh, Trump was able to remake the Republican Party in his image. But there's still some pretty prominent GOP leaders, including, for example, Mitch McConnell, who have signaled rather explicitly that they'd like to see the party pivot away from Trumpism. I think if that faction of the party wins out and the party moves away from Trumpism, That'll actually spell problems uh, for the NRA. So above and beyond its its organizational challenges, it's really sort of inextricably linked itself uh, to that Trumpian political worldview. And so if the GOP pivots from that, I think it'll leave the NRA feeling somewhat politically isolated. Um, um, and I don't think it'll be able to, to sort of pivot away um, from that approach uh, very, very easily. So that's a sort of longer term thing um, I, I, I'm sort of keeping an eye on above and beyond um, on the outcomes of the NRA's uh, current lawsuits, um, whether uh, it's it, it, it sort of place in the GOP um, remains the same and whether the GOP sort of continues to, to, to uh, uh, advance um, the, the perspective um, that the NRA has advanced. And what I would wonder in that is, obviously, the NRA has considerable influence on the GOP. And should things change, will the Repu- does the Republican Party have much power over the NRA or is it just in the other direction? That's a that's a great that's a great question. Um, um, I think historically, you know, I'd be on the side of, of saying that the, the sort of group here um, um, has a lot of power over the, the party um, um, in terms of guiding um, the, the trajectory of the party, uh, particularly on issues that are, are relevant to the group. Um, but it's possible now that 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 fate is closely enough linked that Republican policymakers could exert pressure on the NRA um, to try and get it. Um, um, to change. The other thing that could happen is that um, 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 new voices could emerge from within the gun rights movement um, and, and sort of claim to speak on behalf of, of people who, you know, socially identify as gun owners, um, in which case, um, um, you know, the NRA's role would be less prominent, but it's not clear what that would mean for the gun rights issue, because some of those voices um, that have come to fill the, the, the void um, um, that's that, that, that's sort of been left by the NRA the past couple of years are not closer to the center than the NRA. In fact, they are to the NRA's um, um, right. Um, um, and and on the one hand, um, um, the one hand that that is is something that gives those folks power because they're they're they're, they're willing to take pretty extreme actions. But on the other hand, it's not one um, that makes it likely that that gun rights will sort of shift back to being a more mainstream issue. Um, so it, it, this is an interesting period in a lot of ways. Interesting audience question. What is the relationship between gun manufacturers and the NRA? Yeah, so that's a good question, too. I think one of the sort of uh, common uh, perceptions out there among some is that the NRA is sort of a tool for gun manufacturers and that its influence can kind of be uh, reduced up to the influence of gun manufacturers. But that's not actually what I find. So there's certainly a sort of symbiotic relationship between the NRA and gun manufacturers. Generally speaking, what's good for one is good for the other. Uh, gun manufacturers are happy uh, to have a group um, 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 advocating uh, on behalf of, of gun ownership more broadly. And the NRA, of course, as, as any organization, is happy to get contributions um, from uh, you know, a, a commercial industry. Having said that, historically, uh, there have been conflicts sometimes between the NRA and gun manufacturers because sometimes it's, it's in gun manufacturers' interest to work with government um, um, in ways that could sort of reduce pressure on them without actually reducing gun sales. So, for example, in the 90s, uh, there was an effort um, 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 uh, that, that Smith & Wesson was involved in to work with the Clinton administration to uh, promote um, child safety locks on guns. 
Um, the NRA got really mad about that. It led a boycott against Smith and Wesson, and Smith and Wesson sales declined 40%, um, which to me suggests um, that although there's a symbiotic relationship there, when conflict does occur, I think the NRA has, has historically at least had more power over gun manufacturers than gun manufacturers have over it. Um, um, and so I, I, you know, I think part of the story there um, is related to gun manufacturing. And I, and I, and I, I would also note that I think um, in terms of sort of spreading the identity um, um, that, that, that we've talked about that's associated with gun ownership, in terms of disseminating that to people, I think the fact that gun manufacturers advertise and are happy to sort of play on those themes is something that has also helped the NRA. Um, but I'm hesitant to, to sort of uh, reduce the NRA's influence um, to its relationship um, um, with gun manufacturers. Before I read this next audience question, I want to mention, having read the book, that your book does not judge the NRA. In other words, it doesn't come down in judgment on whether it's good or bad what they're doing. It basically explains how they do what they're doing. But this question is, what do you say to people who think, quote, why shouldn't the NRA promote citizens' right to defend themselves? There's a lot of people in America who view them as a bastion against government trampling on the Second Amendment. So I would say that... that yeah, like you said, I, I'm not really arguing uh, against the NRA in the book, so I don't have anything directly to say to those folks. I mean, uh, one thing I guess I will say, um, even though I've tried to take this objective stance, is that I think that there are times when um, the perceived threat to gun rights is is pretty greatly exaggerated. So one thing I've thought about is, you know, if the NRA um, um, has mostly exercised power by mobilizing people to participate in politics, is that a bad thing? Because that's what we want in democracy, right? We want people um, um, to be active in politics. We want organizations that encourage people to take political action. And so on a really high level, there's this extent to which the NRA, at the very least, we could say is good at democracy. It's good at using uh, mass level behavior to advance its agenda. Where I think you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much more skeptical of the NRA's impact on democracy is that it's willing to often exaggerate the threats um, um, that people face and that gun rights face. Um, um, and so sometimes we're talking about legislation that really is not very severe. Um, um, and, and, and so by portraying it as a sort of attack on, on gun owners as people, I think um, the NRA is both uh, sort of just being a bit dishonest, uh, but also raising the temperature of politics in ways that are probably a bit unhealthy for democracy. You know, sometimes groups really face threats. Um, um, and, and when those groups face threats, um, it makes sense, like deep threats. It makes sense for their leadership to alert um, um, those, those they represent to those threats. Um, you know, other times uh, um, 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 leadership is willing to, to, to really uh, exaggerate the extent to which those, those threats are real. Um, and I think that that's been the case with the contemporary NRA. Um, the other thing the NRA has done contemporarily is, is during periods in which gun rights uh, were not really threatened, during periods in which gun control wasn't really on the political agenda, um, the NRA sort of expanded the scope of the threat. So rather than it being that gun ownership was threatened, it was a sort of broader uh, perspective on politics. It was the, the threat was sort of socialism, for example. Um, and I think uh, that we might question how, how good it is for democracy for um, um, the, the sort of stakes of the debate to be portrayed as that high. Um, 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 and, and, and so I guess, I guess that's one thing I would say, is I would say, you know, if you support gun rights, um, um, then, you know, by all means, join the NRA and, and partake in, 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 you know, activities uh, to, to promote gun ownership uh, and to prevent unduly regulations from being placed on it, if that's, if that's what you think. But, you know, if, if you're thinking that your way of life is under attack, um, um, maybe question the extent to which that's, that's true. Um, um, because one thing that's interesting is we'll see a lot of gun owners in surveys say that they support things like expanded background checks. But then majorities of gun owners say that. Uh, but then sometimes when those regulations are actually proposed, um, um, the debate becomes one that's more about identity than about policy. Um, and so there's a lot of opposition to those policies, even though I, I think that they're things that people agree on. So when, we, when we're driven by identity, um, um, we see things as, as sort of uh, group-based competition, um, um, and, and sometimes that masks the fact that we actually agree on a lot of things. So, um, um, you know, I would say to that person, um, um, just maybe question that. Uh, but I would also say that, you know, there are people, I think, uh, on the left uh, who support gun control, uh, who sometimes do so out of a desire to see the NRA lose and to see gun owners lose. 
Um, um, and so uh, although there might be a lot of merit uh, to supporting gun control, maybe, you know, people on, on that side, too, should should think more um, in, 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 in terms of, of, of solving things than in terms of, of you know, wanting to see um, their opponents lose, even if they really dislike those opponents. This is an audience question. I'm not familiar with the uh, situation they're talking about. It says, can you comment on the role of Russian influence in the NRA as well as gun rights destabilizing Europe and NATO? I cannot speak to the latter issue, um, um, which sounds interesting, but is not something I'm an expert on. Uh, the Russian question is an interesting one. So, you know, as has been well publicized at this point, um, there were efforts uh, launched by the Russian government to 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 uh, uh, promote Donald Trump and help Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Um, I, I think part of those efforts consisted of, of trying to sort of build inroads into the Republican Party. Um, Given that the NRA uh, is a big part of that Republican coalition, given that the NRA plays an important role in the Republican Party, um, one route of entry into the GOP for those Russian agents we now know um, was through the NRA. Um, um, and so I don't know the extent to which uh, the, the, the sort of Russian government has had any role. Um, I have no evidence that the Russian government has had any role um, in sort of guiding the NRA's own approach to politics and the NRA's own behavior. Um, but as part of its um, 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 attempts to influence the Republican Party, um, we do know that it, it, it sort of worked through the NRA and had some success at, 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 at infiltrating. That's right. I think I seem to recall there were Russian operatives who joined the NRA. Right. Maria Butina um, was, the, yeah. Uh, this is an interesting question. Did you talk to Joshua Powell, former chief of staff at the NRA? His book, Inside the NRA, is a fascinating read. I've not talked to Josh Powell. Um, um, and, and, I, and I truthfully, I should read the book. I haven't. I was busy finishing this one. Um, I, I imagine it's a fascinating read. The only thing I'll say, though, is that, you know, when somebody like very acrimoniously and publicly leaves an organization, we probably should take their take on that organization with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, um, so that's all I'll say there. But but having not actually read the book, I shouldn't say more than that. Um, um, this is a good one. Is there a relationship between the NRA and law enforcement? Yes, that's fascinating. So the, um, 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 there's a new uh, book out also from Princeton University Press by Jennifer Carlson called um, Policing the Second Amendment. So I'd recommend that on the sort of general topic. Um, the, historically, the relationship between the NRA and law enforcement is a pretty fascinating one um, because the NRA uh, really wants to have um, 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 sort of rank and file police officers on board with it. And the NRA also wants to train police officers, uh, 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 which is a function that is historically served. Having said that, um, sometimes when gun violence has harmed police officers, it's created rifts between the NRA and particularly between the NRA and police leadership. So historically, the NRA has sort of had to toe the line um, um, on, on, on sort of uh, recruiting uh, rank and file law enforcement officials, um, but not uh, going so far uh, as to uh, seemingly promote policies um, that could harm those officers. So this played out in the 80s, for example, when there was a debate over um, 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 bullets that could penetrate uh, bulletproof uh, vests. Um, um, uh, but I, I would say, uh, at least on the sort of rank and file level, uh, the, the relationship between the NRA and law enforcement um, um, is a fairly strong one currently. I think you talked about this a little bit earlier, but the question is, will bankruptcy really change anything at the NRA? And has it already changed anything? It's that's a really tough question to say. I think it depends on how the bankruptcy proceedings play out. Like I said earlier, I think that that to some extent um, the, the bankruptcy filing seems to be so. So the NRA was chartered. Just to be clear, the NRA's headquarters is in Fairfax, Virginia, but it was chartered as a nonprofit organization in New York in 1871, and it never moved that charter, even as its physical headquarters moved around. Uh, so it can relocate its headquarters to Texas, but that is not the same thing um, as relocating its nonprofit charter. And my understanding of the law is that typically for the NRA to get permission to leave the state in which it's chartered, New York in this case, it needs to get New York's permission to do so and to recharter as a nonprofit in another state. So my understanding of the bankruptcy filing is that part of it is an attempt uh, to sort of uh, try and dissolve the organization in New York and get out of that charter so that it can recharter itself somewhere else. If that were to work, I think the answer would be that the bankruptcy wouldn't change all that much. Um, um, but I don't know that it will work. Uh, I think there's, uh, as far as I know, there's reasons to be skeptical that it will work. 
Um, and so how uh, the bankruptcy more broadly will impact things, I think it's hard to say. It depends to some extent on how dire the financial situation um, um, actually is. Uh, so sorry to avoid that one, but I, I don't think anybody knows at this point. Are there other uh, prominent organizations, lobbying organizations, active, activist groups that that visibly align with or collaborate with the NRA in their work? That's an interesting question. Um, so, I mean, the NRA is sort of generally part of the, the, the orbit of conservative groups that would go to events like CPAC. Um, um, and so at events like that that bring together conservative organizations, I think the NRA does have um, some allies. I'm struggling to think of sort of explicit partnerships between um, the NRA and other uh, um, um, interest groups. Um, yeah, it's a good it's it's a good question. I, um, but but uh, perhaps my brain is fried after after an hour of conversation. But um, I, I, I'm struggling to think of, of, of examples. Of it. Tell us about the NRA and the theory of the three faces of political power. Oh, wow. Uh, that's a question uh, geared in my heart. Um, um, so we could think political power is actually pretty hard to think about. And oftentimes we think about political power along this sort of so-called first dimension or face, um, which involves sort of forcing somebody to do something that they don't want to do. Another dimension of power is what's called the sort of second dimension of power, which relates to agenda setting. You could sort of uh, 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 control the way that a particular process plays out, um, who's involved in that process, uh, which topics of debate are part of that process. Um, and so without forcing anybody to do anything, um, your interest can be advanced um, um, uh, because nothing that would harm you, in this case, gun control, is on the agenda. The third face of power uh, is the hardest one to see, and that relates um, uh, to sort of influencing what people want in ways that align with what you want. Um, and so, you know, the NRA has some power on the first dimension and the second dimension of power, uh, but I think that that sort of core to its long-term power uh, is, that, is that third face of power. It's, its ability to sort of shape um, the political preferences, behavior, and outlook of people um, in ways that align with its interests. Um, and then it's its ability to, to sort of exercise power on that first face, uh, which would, for example, consist of, 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 of launching mobilization campaigns against proposed gun control laws and prevailing as a result. That's sort of a product of its, of its development of power in the third face. Similarly, when, when, when politicians avoid the gun control issue altogether, when they say, we don't want, we don't want to debate this, we don't want to pursue it, and, and as a result, um, it just is, is sort of off the table. Um, that's also a product of the, 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 the reactions that those policymakers um, 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 anticipate from gun owners, were they uh, to pursue gun control. So it can also be linked to that third dimension of power. So this is something I think is a fascinating lens through which to think about politics. And so it's something I talk about in the book. And I hope that didn't just get too um, abstract uh, for everyone, but I, I like the question. No, I thought it was an interesting way to look at it. Uh, so we've reached the point now in our program where there's time for just one last question. And we have a, an interesting one from the audience that may make you think a little bit. But what's the most interesting thing you discovered while researching and writing the book? Wow, yeah, that's, that, uh, that's, that, is, that is a tough question. Uh, most interesting thing. I struggle with these questions too, by the way. Whenever I, I have to come up with saying well, the most, I'm always like, oh, well, this seemed interesting, but is it the most interesting thing? The most interesting thing, um, so there's a, one really interesting thing uh, relates to the Second Amendment, which is not something that we talked about at all. Um, 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 but the NRA started uh, to sort of promote the Second Amendment as protecting an individual right to own firearms um, and, and linking that Second Amendment to a, a, so, so, sort of symbolically to the identity that we talked about. Um, as early as, as the late 1950s and early 1960s. And so I found that really fascinating um, because we don't really see the Second Amendment um, um, debate uh, as a legal debate take off until 15 or 20 years later. Um, so in terms of, of sort of identifying where particular ideas come from, uh, I think it's really fascinating to see um, the NRA's emphasis on the Second Amendment in, in the American Rifleman magazine I analyzed, sort of pick up starting in the 60s. And also I, I found some archival materials um, in which the NRA started discussing the issue and deciding to promote it um, um, as early as the 50s. And so I found that pretty fascinating um, because, you know, I think like there are other scholars who have written uh, 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 more thoroughly about the, the Second Amendment than I have. Uh, but in terms of thinking about it as a sort of political 
symbol. Um, 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 I think the, it originated with the NRA and it did so much earlier um, um, than, it, than it sort of shows up in legal debates. And I find that pretty fascinating. Our thanks to Matthew Lacombe, author of the new book, Firepower, How the NRA Turned Gun Owners into a Political Force, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm John Boland. Thank you. Stay safe and healthy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.